If you would, turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. Just head to the back of the Bible. If you hit Revelation, just back up. And you should be at 1 John. Now, this is our last sermon in in the Dry, Dusty, Dead Doctrine series. I know, you 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 can cry. It's been a... It's been a wonderful road. We've been looking at many, many things. We've covered lots and lots of ground. We remember how we started? We started with the deep, driving, defining need of the human soul. What is that? For justification. There is a God-shaped hole in every soul for God's loving acceptance, for His approving eye. Remember, C.S. Lewis called it the particular pleasure of the inferior before the superior. If you look in all of creation from animals to their masters, down to children, to their parents, they crave with an insatiable longing, insatiable craving for the approval, the affection, the, the delight, the praise of a parent. We have an insatiable need for justification before God. So we need to see that when we begin to talk about this doctrine, we're talking about something deeply personal. We're talking about something that reaches the deepest recesses of your soul and hits the deepest profound longings of your identity. Not an abstract idea. Something very, very personal, very, very powerful. Then we went into, okay, if this is the driving need of the human soul, but who is this God that justifies? And so we went to a scary place. We went to Isaiah 6, and we looked at the holiness of God. Or we could say probably which helps us a little bit because I think we tend to think only in, in moral categories when we think of holiness. Think of the incomparable God, other, different, transcendent. And we went to probably, which is acknowledged by all of us, to be the scariest place you can go in Isaiah 6, where a human being who's unholy comes in contact with a holy God. Remember that? And he says, oh, I'm undone. But we were surprised that we found grace there. We saw that in the scariest place in the Bible, Isaiah was brought there by God not to be judged, but to be justified. It's amazing. So what we can say to us, no matter where we go in the Bible, it's primarily for God to display his grace to his people. Okay? Then, what do we do? Is We turn to us. We saw who God is. Well, who are we? What are we like? And remember, we saw Jesus tell us two stories about two people who went to church, and this is what blew every one of us away. One of them, there's a good one and a bad one that went to church. One of them left justified. One of them didn't. And this is the one that gets us. The good one, the church-going one, the Bible-believing one, did not go home justified. It was the sinner the bad one. And so that just kind of turns categories upside down. The one that God justifies is an ungodly person. I mean, what incredible news is that? Then we moved on and we saw the cameras. We turned on Easter Sunday. We looked at the grounds and the basis for justification. And the question is this, how can God accept unholy people as righteous in his sight? How can that happen? If that's who we are, how can God do that? And what we saw is that through the the death and the resurrection of Jesus, when Jesus rose from the dead, 
It was the verdict of God actually justifying Jesus. Because we saw in the text, he was perfectly obedient to his father, even to death on the cross. And so this is unbelievable stuff. So we're saying that when Jesus rose from the dead, God justifies him for us. And so the grounds, the grounds of justification, of being accepted personally, warmly, taken in, finally coming home, having the deepest longings of your soul met in God's approval and his acceptance of you, is based on the righteousness of another. It's based on the righteousness of Christ. Not your faithfulness, not anything about you and me. Isn't that amazing? Great stuff. So then we kept moving and we went to the righteousness of Christ. We started looking at faith. Well, how do you, how do you embrace this righteousness? And we looked at faith alone. And here's, here's what blew us away. We looked at one who was hanging with Jesus on the cross. He had no opportunity to produce any good works in his life. None whatsoever. We looked at a thief, a criminal. And we saw that he rested, trusted in Jesus. And we saw particularly that, that faith, this instrument, this God-given gift to begin the Christian life and which carries us through the Christian life is an actual gift from Jesus himself. And we saw that this king, when, unlike any other ancient Near Eastern king, when a king in those days, they got gifts, they received gifts. But when this king rose, went into heaven and took his rightful place on the throne, he didn't receive gifts, he gave gifts away. I mean, that's unbelievably stunning. It's unbelievably comforting that this king shows his greatness in giving. In giving and giving and giving. So faith, faith is Jesus, help me. Faith is, I bring nothing to my salvation. Faith is giving up. Faith is relying on Christ alone. Christ alone. Christ alone. Last week, we then looked at doctrine in terms of life change. Today, we look at doctrine in terms of life change. This is how we end it. With this passage, one of the greatest passages in the Bible. And what we're going to do, though, is we have to keep in mind one other thing. We remember we talked about there are two poles, errors that going on in dealing with doctrine. And it's so easy for us to go into one error. And then in reaction to that error, we bounce over to the other pole and we get into that error. And we begin to think that Christianity is only about these two errors. And real Christianity is neither. Real Christianity is not a compromise. It's not a let's have a mediation and bring the two together and take what we like from both. Christianity is a whole other reality. But we bounce. The church bounces. We individually bounce. You know, we grow up and we grew up in real strict home. And then we grow up and as kids and we flee the strictness and we go to the city. And we get wild. Then we react there when we have our kids and we go back to the strictness. And we're just boom, 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 back and forth. Well, here's the two we need to remember about doctrine. You ready? The first error is the death to doctrine movement. Remember? The death to doctrine movement sees doctrine as dry, dusty, dead, and divisively destructive. Okay? 
And what it does is at best it sees doctrine. When it looks at people that, that like doctrine, at best it thinks that it's like a, an intellectual pornography for them. You know, this addiction. At worst, they look at doctrine folks and they think it's, it's like a self-righteous weapon. It's always used against people to say, I'm right and you're wrong. Okay? The death to doctrine movement happened in our generation. So within the church, doctrine has died. So you can tell your grandkids that you were there when it happened. You know, when you have your grandkids or your children, and they come up and they say, you know, Daddy, Mommy, what was it like to be in the church when doctrine died? Well, let me tell you. I was there. I saw it happen. I witnessed the whole thing. So you can do that. Now, if you are a part of the death to doctrine movement right now, and I know that that you are, some of you are, or you agree with a lot of the things that we just, the charges that we're talking about here, here's what I want to say to you. You're right. You're exactly right. In this way. Mainly, the death to doctrine movement is a reaction to another error. And we'll call this error the Dusty Doctrine Movement. And what the Dusty Doctrine Movement has done is it's, it's, it's pulled off an unbelievable feat. It's, it's genetically re-engineered doctrine. It changed doctrine's DNA. That's an incredible feat. To go in there and mess with the DNA of doctrine and actually change it into a whole other existence. And what happened is, is that children that have grown up with churches like that, churches who have grown up and seen churches like this dusty doctrine movement, they've reacted and they said, kill it. And I will say to you, kill it. (laughs) Yes, kill dusty doctrine. So the question you want to ask is, well, what is the, the DNA of doctrine? Here's the DNA of doctrine. It's personal. Doctrine has personalistic DNA, personalistic blood. Doctrine is covenantal. It's always intimate and intoxicatingly relational. There is no such thing as doctrine that's abstract and impersonal and disconnected and detached from real living. In other words, doctrine is designed by God to specifically reach those deep longings of your soul. So here's the vision of doctrine that I've wanted us to grab through this series. Doctrine is like a great spiritual sponge in the hands of God. And God squeezes the sponge. And it soaks and saturates your heart and your life with the Holy Spirit. It soaks and saturates your heart and your life with the love of God, the presence of God, the power of God, the person of God. That's a vision that's neither the dusty doctrine movement or the death to doctrine movement. That's a biblical vision, okay? Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Let's start at verse 13. We'll go down to 19. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He's given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. 
Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected in us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Now that little phrase has generated lots of discussion. I'm not going to be able to touch upon it. My personal conviction is, just as God, Jesus, abided in the love of the Father through his whole earthly ministry, so do we. So do his children. That's my personal view. All right, where are we? 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that your word is not dry, it's not dead, it's not dusty. We thank you, Lord, that that your word is living and it's active, and we thank you that has divine life in it. We thank you that is the word of the Spirit. And we ask that even now, right now, you would fill us with your Spirit and fill us with your word. For they're united inseparably to each other. So, O oh Lord, would you, would you pour the love of God into our hearts by the power of your Spirit through the preaching of your word? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I have so many favorite lines and favorite scenes from Lord of the Rings that it's not fair for me to say one of my favorite lines is. Let's just say it's just one of many. There are tons of them. Well, one of them I was reminded in a book that I was reading recently, and it was, do you remember, had to do with Gimli. You remember the scene? Frodo with Sam. Do you notice how Sam's always left out? I feel bad for Sam. It's always Frodo, even in the movie. Frodo, we got to go get Frodo. Well, Sam's with Frodo. He's got a buddy, right? Well, we got Frodo and Sam in behind the gates of Mordor, right? And the eyes watching them. They're about ready to be discovered and eliminated. Aragorn says, we've got to have a distraction. We've got to take the enemy's attention away from them. So let's, let's go to the enemy's front door. Let's go to the, the black gate of Mordor. And then he turns to his friends, that friends, the fellowship of the ring, the friends that are all there, and new friends that entered into this bond. And he says, are you with me? And then Gimli, that great dwarf, remember what he said? Certainty of death? Small chance of success? What are we waiting for? I love that. Don't you? Certainty of death? Small chance of success? What are we waiting for? How do you get that kind of guts? How do you get it? Is it just for the movies? Is that one of the reasons why we're so, men, we're so addicted to watching heroes in the movies? Reading about them in the books is the reason why? Because it, is it only for the movies? Can you have that kind of guts? Can I have that kind of guts? Can you have that kind of guts when your marriage stinks? Can you have that kind of guts when you're grossly sinned against? 
or you're grossly sinning. Can you have that kind of guts when your heart is breaking and you're fearful and you're anxious and you don't know what the future holds and you're losing control or the illusion of you being in control is finally breaking in on you? Can you have that kind of guts? Can you have that kind of guts when you become aware that you've been spiritually lazy for a long time and God is calling you to make him famous in your life and through your life above and beyond yourself? Can you get that kind of guts? Or is it just for the movies? Right? So how do you get it? How do you get that kind of spiritual guts? I'm going to give you the answer right now. It's the point of the passage. And I'm going to warn you, again, when you look at a point and we're going to look at it, you're going to be like waiting, waiting. When you hear the point, it's going to be like, this is it. I'm going to hear it and I'm going to get it. And I'm going to say no. You're going to intellectually get it. We're going to, we're going to get our minds around it. And then we've got to experience it. You've got to enter into it. Because we know, as we've been coming along this journey, we know that doctrines, DNA, is intensely, intoxicatingly personal. So we're meant to get it. We're meant to experience it, not stored on our shelf with our book. Okay? All right, here's the point. You ready? I want you to look at verse 18a. Here it is. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. How do you get spiritual guts? You've got to erode your fears. I could say it this way. Spiritual guts is gained when fear is replaced by love. See how that works? Now again, spiritual guts is gained when fear is replaced by love. Right now, that's like, that's good, but you don't feel the power in that point yet, and that's not meant to feel it right now. But what I want you to do is put your thinking hats on. I want you to think hard with me because you've got, we've got to get this. Notice that fear has got to be replaced. Do you see that? Fear has got to be replaced. Fear has got to be cast out. It's got to be forced out. I mean, fear is stubborn. Fear is like a sumo wrestler. He's not moving. It's immovable, unshakable, just a big presence. Fear or life change or you getting spiritual guts is not going to happen by you just saying no to fear. No to fear. No to anxiety. No to worry. It's not going to happen. You know what fear is going to do? It's going to laugh in your face. Fear is going to say, oh, oh, what's your new feeling today? I'll dismantle you. Oh, you've worked up your self-will today. You've got more determination today. Come on into the ring. I'll show you how it's done. And fear will pin you every time. So we've got to see. In order for like, let's say, a fear of losing personal glory through failure, that kind of a fear, it's got to be forced out, it's got to be pushed out, it's got to be cast out by something bigger and more powerful. Let's talk about fear that has to do with people's opinion of you. This deep insatiable fear that kind of controls you. I mean, we could talk about the fear side, but if we want to talk about the other side of the coin, we'll talk about the desire side, the desire for human approval and acclaim. Well, the flip side of that coin is the deadly side, 
the dark side, and that's the fear and the anxiety when you, you're on the threat of losing it. The only way that can be eliminated and the only way it can be is by something bigger and more powerful forcing it out. Let's talk about the fear of, of your future and just uncertainty in life and the fear of realizing you're not in control, of not being in control in your life, the fear in your relationships, the fear of whether you're going to be loved or not or not loved. The only thing that can force that out is something bigger and more powerful. So that's what I want us to see before we experience it. Fear must be replaced by love for real change to happen. There's no other way to get it done. You cannot change until fear is displaced by something bigger and better. Okay? Now, now let's move into experiencing it. Because we've got to move. You ready? I know there are many of us that are listening here that are not Christians and we're just checking out Christianity. And that's great and I'm glad you're here. But I want to say this to you. I want you to say, I want you to, to hear from me, from someone who's, quote, religious. We all know that love, whether you're a Christian or not, is very, very attractive. Don't we? I mean, it's cross-cultural. It's cross-generational. It's cross-social economic lines. Healthy people want to be loved. Healthy people need to love and want to love others. Love is beautiful, it's powerful, it's immensely attractive. I mean, look what we've done for love, those of you that have fallen in love. I remember when I fell in love with my wife. I spent lots of money, lots of time on the phone. I did things I'd never do. And she wonders why I don't do them now. I traveled great distances to see her. I rode a Russian airplane at least five times back and forth to see her. Anybody, anybody flown an Aeroflot? Please raise your hand if you've flown on Aeroflot. You know what I'm talking about. All right, we got one brother. Every Aeroflot pilot is an ex-fighter pilot. They go this and they go this. That's all they do. Boom, boom. And if you have a seatbelt, you better buckle it. That's all I can say. All right, I've done crazy things for love. You'll do crazy things for love. And this is what I want you to think about. What Christianity is claiming is that every expression of love is an echo of some greater love. You know how radar works? You got the radar and it's pinging the original? Every expression of love in this world, among human relationships, is pinging like radar the original, the source. Or we could say it this way. It's one note of the bigger music. Or we could say it this way. It's one stream that flows from the big fountain, the source. So what I want you to think about, human love is so beautiful and powerful and so personal can you imagine what the original is like? It's incomparable. I mean, we can try to compare it, but one of the words about God's holiness, it means his, his love is holy, which means bottom line is all we can do is try to talk baby talk, but it's incomparable. Okay? So I want you to think about that. 
In fact, one salty old church guy in the 1500s, his name was John Calvin. This is what he said. He says, the love of God really known to you and me tranquilizes the heart. I mean, come on. Those of you that know John Calvin, I mean, this is, this is, this is like John Calvin on edge. This is like John Calvin downtown. I mean, he's, he's likening love to a controlled substance. It tranquilizes the soul. It's a beautiful picture. All right, let's get back to love replacing fear. Fear also has a starting place. In other words, if, if love, expressions of love, are like radar pinging an original, all expressions of fear are also pinging an original source. If you get this, you are well on your way to understanding a lot about yourself and a lot about a love that displaces fear. In other words, the paralyzing, controlling, gripping, dominating fears in our life, anxieties in our life, unknown, being out of control, losing the threat of losing opinions of others, personal glory. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Those are an echo of a greater fear. The original of all fears. And that is deep, personal condemnation, shame, and punishment before an incomparable God. And so we're right back where we started from. If justification is a deep, personal loving acceptance of you that reaches the deepest parts of your soul, fear points out just the opposite. Instead of being accepted and approved by the incomparable being, it's sensing and fearing his shame, his condemnation, and his punishment. And all fears in our life are the pinging of the radar of that original fear. It kind of works like this. My craving, your craving for approval, or the other side of the coin, fear of losing the approval of others, arises from this deep-seated insecurity of not having the God of the universe's approval and acceptance. In fact, fearing his disapproval, his non-acceptance, his shame and his condemnation. And so what happens is that deep in our soul, that God-shaped hole in our soul, when it's fearing and is not experiencing God's acceptance and approval, what it does is it moves and tries to stuff itself with the approval of others and whatever else it will stuff itself with to try to find acceptance, okay? So what would it happen if that fear was taken away? If the source of all fears, condemnation, shame, personally destructive punishment, legally and relationally before God, if that was taken away, what kind of person would you be? You'd be a Gimli. You'd have guts. Don't miss that that's exactly what this passage is saying. In verse 17... In verse 17, it's saying, By this is love perfecting us so that we will have confidence, confidence, guts, boldness for the day of judgment. 
All right? Now, how do you get that? How do you get the guts? Here's where we're going to experience love, okay? The answer is found in verse 14, just so we see it in the text. And we have seen and testify the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, again, what's happening in the first verse is the witness of the Spirit. The second verse is the witness of the Word. This is the apostolic Word. This is John as an apostle saying, We've seen, we've testified, we're the apostolic witness. That God has sent his son to be the savior of the world. So the deposit of this apostolic witness is what we have right here. And so what he's saying, the way you begin to experience the love that is more powerful and bigger, that displaces and pushes out fear, the way you do it is you stare at a savior in the scriptures. And as you stare at the savior in the scriptures, fear gets pushed out. Watch how this works. Seminary professor Ed Welch, biblical counselor, he says you've got to understand the Hebrew culture. A Hebrew is always part of a larger group. It's this, if you go, we go. One for all and all for one, a three musketeers kind of deal. So what would happen is, is if the patriarch of a clan, if he's shamed, the whole clan was shamed. If he achieves a tremendous victory in honor, the whole clan gets the victory and the honor. Do you see where we're going? When you trust Jesus as your Savior, look at verse 15, the bond is deeper than you think. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Welch calls that bond a turbocharged closeness. Now, if you're a salty theologian, you'd call it union with Christ, or you'd call it covenant. But it is a bond. When you become a Christian, when you trust in Jesus, there is a bond that is made between you and God that is so turbocharged in closeness that whatever he experienced, you experience. So... Let me get this right. So are you saying then, when Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience, you live a perfect life of obedience? You bet. Are you saying then, when, when Jesus died on the cross, you died on the cross? You bet. So when Jesus rose from the dead, you rose from the dead? You bet. Oh, this is getting better and better. So are you saying then, when, when Jesus is justified... I'm justified? You bet. So when Jesus is given the kingdom of God, I'm given the kingdom of God? You bet. So when God the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, and He loves Him infinitely so, and accepts Him infinitely so as His Son, He does that for me? You bet. Un-unbelievable. That will cast out fear. So do you see what's happening here? Is God has made his love so known that Jesus' death became your death. So watch what's happening here. If Jesus' death became your death, Jesus' death was in your place, Christian, for all the shame and condemnation and punishment 
There's no more fear. His death is your death. You're already dead. In Band of Brothers, there were one at at that award-winning show on World War II, taking of D-Day, following the, the, based on a true story of this group that goes all the way from D-Day all the way to Hitler's nest, Crow's Nest. There are two soldiers on one of the shows. One is, every man would want to be, unbelievably heroic, afraid of nothing. And then the other, the other guy, when everybody landed, he hid in a, in a trench and was paralyzed with fear and couldn't get up and move. Well, as they would show the two lives of these shoulders, soldiers in the show, you knew it was going to happen. They were going to meet sometime. And their lives crossed. I know one was, was named uh, Private Bly, and I can't remember the name of the other guy because I'm making it up right now in my memory. Yeah, Sergeant Lieutenant Spears. Yes. And they meet. And you know what Lieutenant Spears says to Bly? He says, you know what your problem is? You know why you're so afraid? You think you're still alive. But when you're already dead, you're afraid of nothing. Brothers and sisters, this passage is telling you God's love is made so manifest that he went to the infinite cost of showing you how much he loves you, that he went as far as he could go, which is to give his own son to take your place in condemnation, in shame, in punishment, so that you're already dead. There's no condemnation anymore. No punishment, no shame. You got guts now. Now, I know many of you, I, I, I don't even know where I'm on my watch. What time is it? I gotta, we got to go. Here's the application. Specific direction is this. I want you to take whatever fear, when you have fears and anxieties come in your life, as I know you do because you are human and fallen, I want you to face those fears with God. And I want you to face those fears and listen to those fears. Because what you're going to get at is not the fear or the anxiety. I want you to get at the source of it. And you want to ask God to help you face the fears. What are your fears and your anxieties attached to? What are they attached to? When you find the source, the echo of what they're attached to, could be fear of man, fear of financial insecurity. It could be all kinds. I mean, how many fears are there? There's plenty of them. The number one command in all scriptures: do not be afraid. Now, isn't that interesting? We got them all. Fear of losing loved ones, losing loved ones. I mean, just name them. I want you to find the fear, face the fear, listen to the fear, hang on. So you want to run. You want to do Colonel. You want to do Sergeant Bly. You want to, you want to sit in your hole and never get out. Face your fears. And as you find it, what it's attached to, now, now stare at the Savior in scriptures with the source of that fear until God's love gets bigger and bigger and bigger and forces it out. That's guts. Amen.